Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is Claire O'Connor and I'm joined today by my co-host Dave Gibney. As always, we're going to have a look at the stories of the week, the weekend papers, and have a look at them from a left perspective and see how they're actually portrayed in the traditional media. Uh, we just wanted to say this week, so um, The Week at Work is part of Left Block, which is a political education and media platform, and you can find us on leftblock.ie, that's Left Block with a C. You can find us on the usual socials, and also you can support us on patreon.com forward slash left block, left block with a C. So our patrons this week would have got an email and an invitation um, to buy tickets for the second year of our Skull Pushed Glee um, festival on Inishir that's happening in the first week of September this year. If you didn't get a, an email, contact us, you know, contact us on Twitter, on Facebook uh, by email and let us know and we'll get an email out to you. But we've had a lot of tickets bought so far. They'll be going on full release next week. Um, And yeah, we think they're going to fly out. They sold out really quickly last year. We've managed to make a couple more tickets available. I think we have an extra 50 tickets available for this year Um, to kind of support as many people as possible coming. And it's a, it's a brilliant weekend. So if you can come, you know, definitely try and make it. And yeah, Dave, you're looking forward to it. I am. I can't wait. Uh, yeah, it's it's the second weekend, I think, of September if people want to look at their diaries and make sure they're they're available. But no, we've got some really good speakers from Ireland and internationally. I'm, I'm really, I suppose, looking forward to Costas Lapovitsis um, speaking. People might remember him from the Syriza days in 2015, highly critical of Syriza and Tsipras and all of the, um, the going on there. He's an economist from the University of London or School of... Um, economics in london but he's um uh, he's a top class um highly critical uh commentator on the eu and that'll be a very interesting debate uh, because we don't get a lot of them throughout europe so and uh, now there's there's a lot of other interesting bits going on like we're going to have a panel discussion on what a united ireland could look like um, with people you know, commenting from different perspectives, say, for instance, from a workers' rights perspective, what a United Ireland could potentially look like or what a, a United Ireland look like from a climate change perspective. So I'm looking forward to a lot of the different debates and a lot of the different speakers and can't wait for it. And then obviously the pints afterwards, which is always yeah, a sweetener. <laughs> okay, let's dive right in, right? So I've been a long time since I've actually done, done an episode, so I've been looking forward to jumping back on. And as always, I'm going I'm to head straight in for housing. So one of the things that absolutely infuriated me during the week, and I don't know why I'm still surprised or why I allow myself or any of us allow ourselves to be kind of stoked by him, but um, Varadkar's comments on housing. So in the past couple of weeks, I don't know if people actually know because the RTE kind of saga has dominated the news so much, and we will talk about it, but because it's dominated the news so much, you know, the really important stories haven't been breaking through in the way they should. Um, And the, the homeless figures are one of those. So we have over 12,500 people in homeless emergency accommodation. And that is absolutely skyrocketing. And just to be really clear, that doesn't include anybody in direct provision. That doesn't include, you know, anybody that's, you know, seeking asylum, refugees, anybody in domestic violence accommodation, and doesn't include over 100,000 people on the waiting list or people that are couch surfing or sleeping rough. So, um, they're, they're extraordinary figures. Again, I remember when we hit 1,000 people in homeless emergency accommodation and there was absolute outrage across the country and we now have over three and a half thousand children in homeless accommodation there's over three and a half thousand kids waking up every morning in a place that they do not consider a home that doesn't feel as nice as some of them might be they're not home they don't feel stable they don't feel secure their parent or caregiver don't have autonomy in that space they don't get to make decisions they have really restrictive rules placed on them sometimes like they're not nice places to be they're just not um and we're absolutely traumatizing kids i mentioned it a lot but to go back to the research that rory hearn and dr mary murphy did we know that when we put children into these environments we're creating long-term trauma we're institutionalizing them and we're creating not only like from an empathetic point of view why we don't care enough about these children and families that we don't want to create a lifetime of trauma and act and other issues that are going to come with it financially as a country because unfortunately sometimes a neoliberal government only cares about that kind of cost uh the financial cost is absolutely massive because we're going to have to respond to these emotional medical and and social needs that are going to arise and the problems that we're actually creating here so yeah so so that's the situation those figures came out a couple of weeks ago so what our waterford whisperers had a great one about you know the coincidence and we, we we find it really hard to get these figures released sometimes and all of a sudden they came out early just right in the middle of the rte saga when the news was dominated by them 
Um, but then we saw Varadkar during the week basically making comments that somebody asked him about the housing crisis and his response was to talk about how he knows people in his constituency in emergency accommodation that are refusing accommodation. They're refusing offers of social housing. And it's like that it turns me stomach. It's it's people do refuse offers mm-hmm. of emergency accommodation. And the vast majority of the time they're for very valid reasons. Yeah. They're but yeah. like some of them actually Sean Murray had an article today um where he went through some of them and some like some of the reasons why people are refusing them are because of things like you know they an abusive partner lives in the area or because they have multiple kids sometimes they with additional needs but also just parenting alone is extremely difficult if you don't have a support system and if you can manage to live even remotely close to family members after some kind of support system also children deserve to have the continuity of living being able to attend the same schools being able to have some sense of support system have some sense of continuity as they're growing up consistency like it's yeah there's valid reasons why people do um and also we've allowed areas and estates in this country to go into absolute complete disrepair there's no support there's no financial support there's no maintenance and the kind of social issues then that that develop in those environments make it really difficult for people to live there so people are entitled to say, do you know, I don't want to go from the frying pan into the fire. You know what I mean? And until the state steps in and actually fixes those issues and actually supports people in the ways that they need, this is just going to be the situation that happens. But what was more most disgusting was that instead of acknowledging that we have this, rec- again, record numbers, that we have this crisis that's massively escalating, he, he goes for the tiny, tiny neoliberal Tory fucking oh it's just disgusting it's so much more extreme than you know people who get up early in the morning and you know what Mick Clifford wrote an opinion piece in the examiner eviscerating the money you know and talking about how like calling this out for exactly what it is and um it's it was it was just a horrible it's just for but what it is is and we've been seeing more and more of this it's for Radger like Fianna Gael are falling apart it seems they have so many TDs that have announced they're not going to run again you know they're they're well, they're dropping and then they're kind of rising again in the opinion polls. But they know, like, they know now that they're going to have to start clawing back some of the the kind of the voters that have started moving towards the far right. They know that they're not going to get that kind of liberal progressive vote anymore, I don't think. So Varadkar is really leaning into the, the, the right wing of Fianna Gael and the right wing sentiment that's out there. And that's where he's going to try and pick up those votes again. So this is a very calculated move on Varadkar's part and it's very obvious what he's doing and I think as hard as it is to, to not get really angry and to react to it you need to try and not even give him the airtime on it because he's showed us who he is for a long time now and we need to um, yeah we need to just focus on you know seeing some alternatives yeah I think Varadkar on that I mean, every every now and then he shows us his true colours. I, th- I think that's the real Leo Varadkar. And then yeah. in between those moments of, you know, um, of exposing himself, we we get this sort of highly trained PR relations type of Leo Varadkar of the, you know, remember when the COVID stuff kicked off and he came out and he was all presidential in his manner of speaking and all the rest of it and we're all in this together and stuff and then you come to these sort of situations and you realise no actually that was all a show this is what he actually believes but yeah he's he's leaning into where he's more comfortable he's leaning into the right because that is where he comes from I mean going back almost 20 years back to 2007 when he was highly critical of drug users and um, using methadone and campaigned against um, the, the provision of methadone to drug users all the way through to, you know, um, what was it? The social welfare cheats, cheat us all, all of that yeah. stuff. You know, that that's that's the man we're talking about who leads this country at this moment in time, which is, um, is still it's scary yeah. because he also came out during the week and he, he basically said that he was asked about the Citizens Assembly on Drug Use and that it's, it is very clear for those of us who are following and involved in the sector that um, what's coming out of the, the Assembly feels like there are going to be very progressive recommendations made on it, which anybody who knows what's going on in the sector knows there couldn't be anything but because that is the obvious progression in, in drug policy. It's the only kind of evidence-based, empathetic, humane policies we could and should have. But Bradford's response in the doll was that you know, it's not a given that we'll accept these recommendations, you know, and and that's very like, you know, we know where he's coming from when he's talking about these things. He shows his bias and his internal conservatism and, and just neoliberalism um, every step and, of the way. So. And remember, he's doctor. 
Leo Varadkar. The Hippocratic Oath do, do no harm. Yeah. And this is the guy, you know, when you come and go, go present them something with on drugs policy, which is, yeah. uh, you know, harm reduction uh, proposal. Unfortunately, he does a hell of a lot more harm as a politician than he ever could have done as a doctor. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's um, ah, it's very frustrating to have somebody like him in there leading the way. But um, the other story on housing that I saw in the business post is Killian Woodsman, which is very interesting. Um, headline is rents the state pays for social homes is set to rise by up to 16%. So this is um, in relation to a change in, in, in legislation back in 2019, uh, where they linked rent reviews to inflation. So Pat, uh, well, the, the story, I suppose, comes from Keen O'Callaghan from the Social Democrats, who said the state's decision to link rents, it pays to social homes uh, to the ind- to the index which when he's referring to the index, he's talking about the harmonized index of consumer prices. Um, well, he's calling it highly irresponsible back in 2019 when they did it. Um, and there's a couple of comments in this article, which is of, of interest, uh, saying that, you know, Dara O'Brien, Minister for Housing, um, he linked private market rents to inflation in 2021, um, but the move backfired and prices suddenly spiked. The rents in the private market can be increased by only 2% per annum. It says here, um, but landlord leasing to the state, who, however, who are in line for a rent review, will be able to increase rents by up to sixteen percent this year because, as we know, rents hit a high of nine point six, or sorry, inflation hit a high of nine point six percent in July twenty twenty two, and now they fall into five point four percent. So we're talking a, a combined amount almost of sixteen percent. So, um, and. To me, looking at that, when they talk about highly irresponsible, I don't see the logic in why they they set up these clauses in those contracts with those landlords, uh, because on and we'll get into it in a few minutes. But on the on in another completely different department of the Department of Health, we're seeing uh, Pascal Donahue writing to Stephen Donnelly and saying we can't have the health budget spiraling out of control, unprecedented, and all this sort of stuff. But yet we're okay. We haven't heard a dicky bird from the Minister for Finance on rents spiraling out of spiraling out of control and of course the solution the real solution to some of that stuff would be why are we paying private well, landlords yeah. for fucking housing that we could easily provide ourselves and this begs the question you know why like why are we allowing that system to still take place when you know in the 30s 40s 50s 60s we were building public housing um ourselves as a state um, and paying obviously no rents to ourselves for it yeah. and not not being concerned about inflation. And I think it was a Colomini during the week had a comment came out yeah. about it saying he grew up in a housing estate. And, yeah. you know, yeah. So they could know, build you... them down. Why can't they? Now? Neoliberalism and capitalism. I mean, we know the answers like it's a, like we've, we've talked about this so much. We know we're paying doubly. We're not only paying that extra 16 percent. A lot of the time the state is involved in actually providing the land for these estates or providing tax breaks for REITs and, you know, investment trusts and, and vultures to come in and buy up all blocks of apartments. Like, these are buy to, to let, basically. These are bills to let, bills to rent. Um, so not only then are we providing subsidies as a state and transfers, basically, for, for companies based out, like the money is leaving the country as well. They're usually co- companies that are based outside Ireland um, are probably paying very little tax around the world, uh, are making huge profits. They're not, you know, on the market looking for for the credit to actually buy these properties. They have the money there. So they're buying them. They're 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 driving prices up because they're getting into bidding wars with everyday individuals and families who are trying to buy homes. Uh, and they, they buy them, they lease them back for maybe 20 years, 25 years, usually not having to look after the maintenance. So the, the, the council will actually take over the responsibility for maintenance too in the properties. Unlike, you know, an individual landlord who will be, who might rent it out, won't get the same tax breaks. I'm certainly not here to defend landlords either, by the way, but like even just when you hear the government coming out and talking about these mom and pop, they like, oh, turns my stomach and um, the language they use around individual landlords and small landlords and um, they're the ones actually incentivizing the massive corporations to come in and become institutional landlords but what happens is is then they get all these um incentives to come in and do that and then we pay them through the nose they they get these little uh sweeteners in where they can you know the the rent can go up by 16 percent when it can't in the private market again individual landlords can't can't increase rent by that the council is responsible for the maintenance so they don't even have to do the maintenance and then in 20 years like they, they get to renegotiate that so in 20 years time and a lot of these 
deals have been negotiated over the past couple of years. This is a relatively new enough thing. So in, in 17 to 23 years, we're going to have a load of housing stock disappearing from the, the and I have inverted commas here, the council or the state um, housing stock. They're going to they're gonna have the upper hand because it's either, right, now when we renegotiate, you have to give us all our terms that we want or all of these people now are out of a home and the state is in a really, really bad position overnight. So it's it's ridiculous, but it's neoliberalism and it's capitalism because we could have built those ourselves. We could have hired the same builders that the private companies are hiring. We could have saved the incentives, saved the subsidies and, and kept the land ourselves. And it's absolutely infuriating. It really is. And like, you know, I've just made a comparison and I've done a back of the envelope calculation here. I, I made the comparison with health and housing here where, you know, you're seeing um, on health, the figures here in the article by Daniel Murray and Aaron Rogan in the Business Post says that there's there's a potential. Now, it's, you know, the, the indications are it's not going to go to two billion, but they're talking about a potential overrun in health of two billion, which is less than nine percent. Because uh, we spend over 24 billion on health every year, right? So it's less than 9% that we're spending on health. And what's happening is that Stephen Donnelly is asking the Minister for Finance for higher allocation, uh, higher budget for capital spending. And this is an important point because we did a, a special with Conor McCabe a couple of years ago in relation to this about the importance of capital versus current spending from budgets. So he's looking for more money for capital spending. And what we're getting is a kickback from the state, from from the minister, from um, Pascal Dunne, who's saying, no, 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 no. And that's a 9% overrun is what we're talking about. But in housing, we're talking about a 16% overrun. Percentage-wise, it's almost double what the previous, what the health one is. And we're yeah. getting nothing. Because that overrun happens to be going into the pockets of landlords. That overrun is going into the pockets of REITs and for all of these you know, investment funds and trusts and all sorts of things. What we can't have if you were to read between the lines on this, is good capital infrastructure and a yeah. decent health. Stability. Yeah, yeah. Stuff that's going to look after the people. But we yeah. don't hear Dickie Bird when it's people, you know, the, the finances of the state are being poured in, poured into private landlords. Um, You want in on that, Claire? Just another thing, right? There was an article in there from Sean Murray in The Examiner and it's about Bernardo's. So there was a lot of these pre-budget submissions. I seen them from one family from Bernardo's and the Vincent de Paul. You know, a lot of them are really centering around child poverty because our poverty rates are just horrific here, um, particularly child poverty. But one of the things that they did say is that, so they're, you know, they're requesting very definite amounts in increase in social welfare, increases particularly for one-parent families, increases for, like they're talking about, we need families to be able to feed themselves and pay their bills like that's an absolute basic but one of the things that's mentioned in it is that the government you know must increase core social welfare rates uh but also a longer term goal of benchmarking social welfare payments in line with minimal essential standard of living requirements so it's kind of tying into what we're talking about there there's some kind of benchmarking like so again the the these deals that you know there's a, a benchmarking in line with whatever you know whatever measurement they want to pull out and say is the most important one at any given time to the re or to the state or to our to growth and again i know nobody can see <laughs> these constant <laughs> little air quotes i'm putting up but um but we're not willing to do it when it comes to actual you know helping the people who need it most and actually not even helping because it shouldn't be helping it should be a basic uh, standard of living and a safety net for everybody that we haven't really got in this country a lot of people claim we're some kind of welfare state but actually the you know the pandemic shows that when it came to it and when um everybody had to live on social welfare and everybody was at risk of losing their job, all of a sudden so social welfare rates went up to three fifty, you know, for a lot of people who are living on on it long term, particularly people with disabilities, carers, um, you know, people in one parent families who even if you don't get into the the labour stuff, because it, there was the, there's, there's some great articles in the Examiner. There was another one talking about our um, you know, it's around cost of living, but it's all it was also around uh, you know, how our Employment rates are, you know, technically looking really good, but actually the research that came out there a couple of weeks ago, I think he was covered it on the pod, um, that showed, you know, over a third of people are are, are struggling to survive, like really struggling to survive. Um, but it links the two things in talking about how it just shows the actual quality of the worker that's out there. If people, if if we have the employment rates we have, if we have such a low percentage of unemployment, it just really questions the type of employment and the, the payment and the conditions that people are working under. Because, you know, a study by the Competition and Consumer Protection Com uh, Commission, yeah, it showed that a third of the population are just getting by financially and 12% would only be able to cover their costs for a single month if they were hit by an, you know, an income shock. 
Mm-hmm. And that, again, those figures get much higher talking over 50% of lone parents and people in shared homes. So it's 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 not anything we don't already know. It's not anything we haven't talked about. But I think it's interesting when we're talking about, you know, when it's housing is considered for profit, it's always going to be considered for profit by a neoliberal government. It's a way to extract money from the from the state. And but when it comes to benchmarking in this in a similar way to, you know, some of our, our growth factors or some of it, you know, whether it's GDP, whether it's any of the economic indicators that we have the statistics for, um, we're not willing to use those to then benefit people. Yeah, I, I read a really good quote the other day and I, I was just about to Google it to see who who actually stated it but uh like it's an old quote from from years gone by but it was something along the lines of i'm paraphrasing here so get don't don't kill me if i get it wrong but it's um rents are a tax the rich put on the poor um and and it was a bit longer than that but i can't really remember the full uh, amount of it but that's that's effectively what what's going on there with the rents um and i'm glad you raised some of that stuff um around covid and the rest of it because uh I'm get. I have a big bugbear around this term that's being used all the time now, and it's in this article here on, you know, Donahue, Pascal Donahue, Warren, Stephen Donnelly over unprecedented, unprecedented. This is the headline: unprecedented risk of two billion health budget overrun. Right, and it says in his letter, Pascal Donahue wrote to Stephen Donnelly. He said, "This is an unprecedented level of financial risk." And I go, "Was he not around for the financial collapse in two thousand and eight and for the COVID, as you just mentioned there, the, the like." Well, this is this is the point. Like, and nobody's questioning these terms. They throw unprecedented out there constantly, as if things have never there's never been a financial risk to the state, right? But this yeah. is not this is not a two billion overrun on this, um, in a year is not anywhere near the sixty four billion that we had to give out because of the actions of the likes of Anglo Irish Bank and all the rest of it, right? It's not anywhere near the twenty four billion that we had to pay out in COVID in in, in a year uh, on the yeah. COVID payment. So it's not unprecedented. We have seen situations like this, and yes, it might be mismanaged. We are in the article. It does tell us that we're one of the highest spending countries in terms of health, but that's not given us the true story because a large part of the spending that we have on health in this country is the private health system of um, insurance and all the rest of it and I think it's about a third of everything we spend on health in this country goes directly into the pockets of the likes of Aviva or whoever is covering you uh, VHI I don't, I don't even know I don't have private health insurance so I'm not even sure what the companies no, are current spending, though. a lot of it is current like we have a huge managerial sector within the HSE we have it, like how you know there's questions to be asked about how the health service is actually run we have a real five day service I know there's a lot of doctors you know particularly junior doctors that are working you know, unhealthy hours and they work over the weekends and things like that. But we do have, you know, a five day healthcare system. It's very difficult for people to get healthcare on the weekends. You know, locums, GPs are absolutely overrun. I had to go to the DDoc there a couple of weeks ago. And it's like the service that's been provided by people on the ground and healthcare workers is still extraordinary, but it's, it's, they're doing it on their knees sometimes, like literally on their knees. And um, my mom had a doctor, she went in during COVID and she, well, sorry, it was kind of towards the end of COVID, but she said he used to, literally stop he used to get on his knees for a rest every time he stopped with a patient because you know they were just so overrun but when i hear what you're saying there that that potential two billion overspend it's like who's that a risk to if it's going to bring stability and if it's going to bring capital infrastructure and capital spending it's a risk to private health insurers who rely on the destruction of a public health service to actually fuel the private health care sector the private hospitals need the public health care sector to not run efficiently so that people are driven into private health care. That's the problem. People who are fundamentally opposed to private health care still have it because they feel that they you know like it, it it's too risky not to have it because of the state of the healthcare service. Yeah. And and the thing that's really interesting here is that Donahue, Pascal Donahue is writing to Donnelly um who's looking for an extra six point three billion in capital funding over five years from twenty twenty four to twenty twenty eight to meet the government's health goals. So, I mean, there's a bit of PR at play here, obviously, right? That this is Fianna Fáil versus Fianna Gael in, in, yeah. in battle in the Irish media, playing it out in the Irish media, where, you know, they have a combined government that's setting health goals and have Fianna Gael mm-hmm. saying, no, 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 we can't spend on capital infrastructure and Fianna Fáil saying, we need this money in order for me to get reelected and look good. Yeah. So there's there's all that stuff at play as well. But, you know, it's it's the way it's presented as if this is unprecedented and we shouldn't be spending on health where... You know, yeah. and going back to the start of this is where we don't see that shit going on in housing. 
We yeah. don't see them saying like Fianna Fáil aren't out there saying we cannot be paying these private landlords that yeah. amount of money. No outrage. Yeah, the outrage it's is outrage. on on the stuff that that, that like public spending. There's yeah. no outrage on. I know it's public spending, but it's going into private pockets. So yeah, yeah it's it's. But um, it's also when you were talking about the bailout, right? That was spread across every person in the country, including children who hadn't been born yet. So if you think the actual cost to every individual in the country really depends on you know what proportion of your actual income that is. So people who are very comfortable and people who are always going to have you know a comfortable income it's just not going to impact them as much as it does people who are already struggling and could do with that small bit of extra money in public spending um and, and just on that because you've raised this again like i said 64 billion and i'm not apologizing for that that's the figure that people throw out there a lot right yeah but we had a at that particular moment in time we had a, a, a government debt of 47 billion our government debt now is 230 billion did I say million? I mean billion, right? So yeah. the actual bailout itself cost us more in the region of 150 billion euros. Yeah. And here they are complaining about a little bit of spending. Two. Yeah, yeah, two billion. And it's unprecedented. And, <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, like, we're, you know, we've forgotten very quickly about the pandemic we just came out of and the fact that the lack of capital investment actually created the a lot of the kind of harms and the preventable harms that came out of Ireland's experience of the pandemic came from us not having the public health infrastructure that we needed and public health doctors and consultants were constantly talking about it we were talking about the number of ICU beds we had capita you know compared to a lot of places across Europe and those were the thing those are the factors that would have dictated the amount of people that died those are the factors that dictated how well we were able to respond so the fact that we already have a staff shortage meant that when you know, staff and healthcare workers were out sick. It put a, a huge strain on the rest of the workforce. The fact that we had left less ICU beds meant that people couldn't access ICU beds and were dying unnecessarily. So these are the factors that actually impacted that. But also another story again in the examiner today. Oh, sorry, not no, not a story in the examiner. A story that came in that is that noteworthy are basically fundraising for, and it's around um a reference to a couple of you know articles and research over the years. So it talks about basically how you know according to the WHO, antibacterial, antibiotic, and kind of micro microbial resistance is the biggest threat to public health in the future so you know in the future if we all become resistant to to antibiotics like people will start dying of very preventable diseases and obviously that's a big thing you know doctors won't prescribe antibiotics as much anymore antibiotics going to the food chain is monitored more carefully but what the what noteworthy want to investigate is the prevalence of irish pharmaceutical companies dumping antibiotics into our seawater basically and into our water systems and it's been shown worldwide that 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 has an impact on antibiotic resistance so pharmaceutical companies who are supposed to be although we all know they're for profit business models but pharmaceutical companies who are actually developing antibiotics to defend against and you know cure disease or illnesses and diseases are potentially the ones that are actually going to increase our likelihood of becoming antibiotic resistance because of their illegal uh dumping of antibiotics into into war waste so they're basically fundraising if anybody's interested in, in contributing to that go on to noteworthy they do really good investigative journalism and um, but they they crowdfund for it in advance so some great information about it online uh but I just think that's a really interesting one as well. All of these potential future public health risks that we know are there, we're not even acknowledging. And yet they won't even give the capital expenditure to meet the need that's already there. So we're going to get into another situation where we're going to have another public health crisis. We're going to have another pandemic. We know that's going to happen, particularly with climate um, destruction. And there's absolutely no urgency in, in creating a health system that's actually ready to meet that need. That's that's it. I hadn't heard anything about that Um leaking of antibiotics or any other um uh, off runs of, of pharmaceutical from pharmaceutical companies because um and i'd be interested in this stuff because I, as of when i was a postman in my days of being a postman i used to deliver to a lot of pharmaceutical companies around yeah. this area in dublin north um uh, so you had at the time they, fa they failed like they failed to disclose it so it's that you know in 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 the past couple of years the global drug industry watchdog found that the world's leading manufacturers drug manufacturers many of them with facilities in Ireland. This is the thing. This is a very Irish uh, 
problem as well. They failed to disclose the antibiotic discharges from their factories into water sources. And then look, when the, when they're released into water sources, naturally occurring microbes, like such as bacteria and fungi, are exposed to them. And they can then become resistant to the drugs. And then that has the potential to enter the, the human food chain. So it's, it, you know, it's a very, very real risk here. Um, a 2021 piece of research in NUI Galway um, found that resistant bacteria carried naturally by sheep and cattle was found in 39 water samples taken from the sea, the river, the estuaries and lakes in Ireland. So, you know, like it, it, it's a problem. Like, and they, they want to examine it and they want to investigate it. They obviously need, they're looking for like three and a half thousand euro to do it. So it only came out this morning. Um, but just if anybody's interested, I've contributed to a couple of their research because I think that they're, uh, they're really, they're, they're great on climate stuff. They have, um, a brilliant climate journalist and then they they've been great on kind of institutional abuse and things like that so i think uh yeah if you can support noteworthy as well they're doing some great work yeah should we move on to the rte stuff or have you yeah. had any stories this week about rte because I, I it's been very well quiet. I, I was in the i was actually in the doll on tuesday um a report i was involved in uh was launched and we might actually touch on that as well in a bit but there was a Certainly a buzz about the place, um, because the two committees were on. Yeah, and I, I've been reading up on what's been going on in RTE over the last couple of days, but I found the most I not eye opening because it's not really a surprise. But there's an article in the Sunday Independent today, Eilish O'Hanlon granting RTE staff a veto on Ryan Tuberty's return would set a terrible precedent. Now, I know she didn't write the headline herself, so I decided to read through the article for my sins. And um, it's, you know, part of the remit of this podcast, I suppose, is to analyse what's being said, not just what the news story is, but how it's being presented and how she has presented it. But at no point in the article does it say that they're looking for a say on whether Ryan Tuberty maintains his job, um, the staff here, right? Uh you know, there's no threat of a strike or anything of the sort if Ryan Tuberty comes back. But the way it's presented is that, oh, here we have this militancy from Emma O'Kelly, who ha- happens to be the education RTE, RTE education correspondent and National of Union, Union of Journalists representative, um, who has been the official face of the protesters. And was, she was asked, how would staff feel if Ryan Tuberty came back? To be blunt, what does it matter how they would feel about it is what Eilish O'Hanlon says, and it's presented in that way as if um, O'Kelly um, is seeking the head of Ryan Tuberty, but but there's no such thing of it within it, right? But again, there's um, she's making comparisons later on in the article. She says staff of France's only national newspaper, Le Journal de Man- du Dimanche, uh, are currently on strike in a protest at the appointment of a new editor who they regard as being far right. Okay, so you're talking about somebody who's being called far right in France, where they have a very active far right and very dangerous far right. What's the next sentence from Ayla Shohanan? The staff, they cannot be allowed to succeed either. That that way lies madness. So what That's I find because she's she's linking something that she sees in France that goes against her values because she's very right leaning. Um and she's trying to link it to something here to make it relevant and to make the point and to stoke fear. This is something that she does. It's something that these type of columnists like her do. But she's, again, she's trying to misrepresent. She's actually pitching a, a trade unionist against, you know, the woke mob culture language. That's what she's doing. Absolutely. That, that's exactly it. it it's, it's starting a row that doesn't exist yeah. uh, by comparing with something that's going on that's much more sensational. Like nobody is accusing Ryan Tuberty of being far right. Like, yeah. I don't know the ins and outs of this story over in France, but if workers are democratically removing their labor because they don't want to work with somebody who perhaps is anti-migrant, perhaps is, you know, when you, when they're quoted as far right, you know, we, we know what that means, right? Yeah. Um, and she's pitching that story from France over here when it doesn't exist here in the first place yeah. and putting Emma Kelly up on a pedestal as if she is the person who's leading this lynch mob after poor old Ryan Tuberty sort of stuff but it's very it's very interesting to see that this stuff gets the time of day at all and even you know the sub-editors obviously felt that this was a headline that was worth using even though there's nothing in the article about the staff seeking Ryan Tuberty's head so you know it's uh, I, I just found it an interesting story that this is 
this is how it's being laid out. You cannot have, and this this is where I want to go, as a trade unionist, you'd expect me to say this, but I believe in democracy. Democracy at work is a fundamental part of democracy. This The, the, the right wing, like Eilish O'Hanlon, don't believe in democracy at work. And if workers collectively decide to withdraw their labour, and I'm not saying they are going to, because there's no question of this happening with Ryan Tuberty, but if they do, over concerns, over anything, a legitimate dispute, so be it. Why would we oppose that democracy in workplaces? Like, but if there's a, you know, Eilish O'Hanlon would be the first one, I'm sure, to tell us if we were to interview her that she believes in democracy in a political system. So if there was a democratic removal of a leader of a country, that would be absolutely fine. I'm sure she'd say that. But when it comes to the workplace, we don't agree with that. And I find that an interesting debate in itself. Um that democracy is all fine, well and good within the political system, as long as we all stick to the capitalist system anyway, and the economics don't change and all the rest of it, we can remove the heads and the leadership. But we don't want democracy in workplaces, because as she calls it, that's too dangerous. That's a dangerous road to go down, as she says. But it's um, yeah, it's an interesting... It's also one. just really bad faith. Like, it's really bad faith arguments that the right wing have, have that lean into, because they're... Their values and their core arguments are so unempathetic. They're so unfair. Like they're, it feels like really childish language, but at its most basic, that's what it is. It's being okay with the exploitation and the exclusion of whole groups of people. So they can't argue that out in a in a kind of good faith sense. So you have to resort resort to, you know, the woke brigade, the loony lefties, the like. This is. When you get into that kind of level of argument and you have to create straw man arguments, basically having an argument that doesn't exist in the first place, it's because you can't stand over your own argument without having to acknowledge where your values and your principles lie, I think. Yep. And we could do we could do a whole episode or a whole series, I think, on the RTE um saga because like we all know the value of public service broadcasting. Like it should absolutely be protected. The reality is that we've had serious issues in our public service broadcasting for a long time that go beyond these financial issues. So when I'm watching the past couple of weeks and I'm seeing how these decisions are made, the lack of transparency, the lack of internal democracy, the lack of the lack of respect and regard for public funds, really, you know, that people are making these decisions and feel like they have the right to. For me, the next step is well, does that really surprise me in the sense of the editorial decisions I've I've seen made? Like they would argue, I'm sure RT would RT always use this balance argument, you know, public funds and balance. Whereas when I look at it, I don't see balance. No. I don't see balance. I see a stoking sometimes of conservatism. I see a public service service broadcaster that has come from being rooted in extremely Catholic conservative culture for a long time and their view internally of what and like listen there's some excellent excellent people in RTA I know people are working there who are so progressive and who are absolutely brilliant but unfortunately I don't think a lot of those people are at the helm you know you look at some of the people and some of the connections that's been made between the likes of D Forbes and Coveney and uh, some of the board members and how they've all moved around the same companies you know they've been mm. board uh, you know being directors on boards of the same companies and things like that and that's not healthy like that's not healthy for the culture within an organization and I think that when you look at you know there was jokes being made about how some members of Sinn Féin were so expertly grilling the RTE board in front of them and that that comes from a place of them being treated so badly for so long by RTE uh, but it does make you question like if the culture can be like that at a really high level what other decisions are being made that don't don't you know revolve around finance that we may never really actually hear or see the decisions behind but have a huge impact on the culture in this country because they are the public broadcaster they decide what goes on the news a huge amount of people watch the news read the website watch the content that's put out and culture is really like, i think culture has been spoken about so much and i think it's absolutely vital and it's at the center of this and, and how that's changed i think steve baker would be somebody who would be brilliant to to li listen to on this because i think how it's changed and the impact it has not only on um governance and finance and transparency internally but what that actually means for the the editorial decisions that are made because you know you can have brilliant editors and they can say that they're impartial and that they're not being affected but funding decisions are made internally about what gets funded and what doesn't and and I just think that that's all really interesting as well. And there was an excellent article in in the Examiner actually from um Clodagh Finn, who was an adoptee herself, and 
it, it was the the name of the article was forget flip flops. Remember how we treated mother and baby home survivors. And she it's a it's a beautiful article. And I think you know please read it if you can. But she basically goes in and she says here is she starts off by saying here are some of my recent diary entries. One, RTE spent nearly five grand on fifth on party flip flops. Two, the minimum payment for women who spend time in mother and baby homes in inverted commas is five thousand euro. That was agreed under the terms of the mother and baby institutions payment scheme, which has just been signed into law. Three, the flip flops continue to make the headlines. So we're not talking anymore about the women and the children who are now adults who spend time in institutions who were some of them who were subjected to vaccine trials, some of them who were subjected to the most horrific treatment um have never been acknowledged have been dragged through you know reports and interviews and and processes through the years only to be completely excluded from this scheme so there are people who were completely excluded from this scheme if they spent less than six months in an institution and yet we're talking about five grand so flip of public money so flippantly spent on flip-flops for a party and that's actually what's making the news and i think it's it's a really important point that she's made it's that some of what was talked about around OTE was really important over the past couple of weeks. And as tends to happen, some stuff wasn't. And it was then sensationalized because it was part of the bigger story. But we're, we lose focus on like, why do we keep the outrage about things that are maybe easier to interact with? And we don't continue to to talk about and raise the issues that are central to how we treat the most vulnerable people and people who have been hurt by the state in this country. And I think that that's it was a, it's a brilliant article if anybody can read it. Yeah, um, sounds interesting. I will have a read of that one. Um, and then just on to, to wrap up on my RT part of it anyway, again, is that because um, I think people have heard most of the arguments and they know the sensationalized stuff about the, the headline. But again, in this article here by Ailish O'Hanlon, uh, and I'm glad you raised it around the whole the public broadcaster um, remit and all the rest of that side of things. Emma O'Kelly. Uh, this is a quote from the article. Emma O'Kelly may represent the workers, but her frame of mind is no different really to that of DGD Forbes, who was always insisting during her, during her tenure that RTE deserved more money because it was such a deep, deeply special place without which the country could fall apart morally, spiritually, politically. O'Kelly's view was that RTE's existence is important for democracy. What are staff at the Kerryman, the Sligo champion, Drogheda Independent, Wicklow People or other local new newspapers around the country doing if it isn't public service journalism too? And we always knew this, and this was commented on on Twitter from the start of this debate, that this these arguments will be used by the right to yeah. deconstruct public service broadcasting and, and to portray those four in particular um, uh, articles uh, or, or newspapers uh, as doing the same service as what RTE does. She doesn't mention that they're all, as far as I know, under the umbrella of Ailish O'Hanlon's actual employer, the independent media group, right? So she's saying that, oh yeah, we're, we're just as important as RTE. Now, I have my problems with RTE and you've just raised one of them, which is again, during the week, I listened to Kevin Backhurst um, talking about this and others talking about it as well, is, you know, will Tuberty be back? Won't he be back? And, and the argument was made, well, we have to consider the advertising revenue. He brings in a lot of advertising is the argument that people, these stars bring in a lot of revenue and other than that, we'd be we'd be fucked effectively, right? But that that's what encroaches on the public service broadcasting remit. Because yeah. once you have Aviva or, you know, one of the big companies, Facebook even, or whoever it is, it doesn't matter, taking out advertisements in RTE, do we think that that's not having an influence on editorial lines? Well, here's somebody actually telling us at the top of RTE that it is. We yeah. have to consider how much revenue Ryan Tuberty can bring in, and that's why he gets appointed to the positions. That influences then to a wider editorial line of, you know, uh, what, what's it called when we're um, when they're throwing stuff up? Uh, clickbait. So clickbait style articles and clickbait style shows, a bit like Joe Duffy does, that suck people into nonsense arguments to articles like this in the Sunday Independent. That's not public broadcasting remit. That's not in service to the public or to democracy. The job that Emma O'Kelly actually does on or as Ortiz education correspondent is public service broadcasting because she's very good at illustrating what's going on in our education sector. Yeah. We don't see that stuff from the Indo. And that part of that would be because private institutions who supply education would have an influence over editorial yeah. lines over there. What I'm saying here is RTE needs to get rid of the commercial side of it, the ads, and yeah. operate a bit like the BBC does. And if that 
needs a restructuring of the you know license fee and all the rest of it so be it let's bring it into a progressive taxation sort of a system where yeah. we can have a proper public service broadcaster with no ties to any private sector yeah and i think that like you know watching the the committees on tuesday particularly with toberty and his agent um he said all the right things you know like he he was a good, he basically said all the things that had been said in the previous week or so about the 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 phrase talent and how you know it's the cameraman and it's the people on the ground and RTE who keep the place running and, and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, some people have, I heard some people online saying, you know, it's his agent's job to get us, get him as much money as he can, as he can. And, you know, it's like, he's a contractor. Like if he's, if RTE are going to give him the money, like basically taking any kind of autonomy away from him. And it's like, if you are earning that much money, you like, and you are willing to earn that much money, knowing that there are people in the newsroom who are recording segments in toilets who can't get their travel expenses back. If you are the flagship, you know, employee or contractor, and and he even he was using those terms interchangeably, which shows the the real root of the problem in RTE around bogus self employment and things like that. Like he started a statement by saying, "My employer." has misled you or you know you know or has has told untruths um and then he talked about how he's an independent contractor but he was willing to accept and he was willing to to fight for himself to not take a pay cut knowing the comfortable position he was in when his when staff on his own show when the people at the lowest payments in RTE were struggling on COVID payments were struggling to pay their mortgages were struggling to and it's just like we have to get away from this idea that everybody doesn't have a part to play in in our society like you know he could have very easily said you know what 300 grand is more than enough for me I don't need the extra 104 or 150 grand, or whatever it is you know what I mean like this how like how much is enough it's a it's like the whole conversation around billionaires it's like like there's an ethical conversation here to be had about the distribution of wealth around an organization which I think feels very we should get into the saga after stuff next but um like he very easily could at any stage said, you know what, it's unethical for me to be earning this when people in the in the newsroom and, you know, keeping this organization alive are actually working at their own expense. They're not being paid. They're not getting their expenses paid. They're struggling because of their commitment to the organization. So, you know, it's all well and good that he's saying all the right things and he's saying all these things. He's a performer, you know, but at the end of the day, he extracted a massive amount of money and his agent worked on his behalf to extract that much money from the organization that he says he loves and the people he loves in there and he's a part of that problem every everybody earning those kind of wages in any sector with that when when what you're earning is so disproportionate to what the people creating the content and the value and actually making a, a system work um in a workforce is is earning you know a tiny percentage of what you are like you are the problem yeah absolutely yeah um I'm, I'm going to move on to another article that I've come across here and we can, um, you can, I don't, I'm sure you haven't come across it if you haven't read the business post this morning, but it's saying um, shares levy must be scrapped to stem tide of firms quitting the Irish stock market. Um, and the reason, again, I'm raising something this boring is because of the way it's presented in the media, because it's not something that caught my eye. And I was like, oh, I, I read it reluctantly this morning. But um, Euronex Dublin who owns the Irish Stock Exchange, which I didn't know. I thought the Irish Stock Exchange, I actually hadn't considered who owned the thing, right? Um, it warns that tax puts, the tax, the, the, there's currently a 1% levy that's been put on the Irish stock market. Uh, but it warns that Ireland is at a complete disadvantage as it fights to convince Flutter, who's the owner of Paddy Powers, not to follow CRH, the largest company in Ireland, uh, largest Irish-owned company that's just left to go to the New York Stock Exchange, right? So anyway, that's the gist of what's going on. But Euronext says the decision um, over stamp duty will be an important factor on whether Flutter decides to follow CRH, the Irish-founded building materials giant, who which dealt a major load to the, blow to the Irish stock market earlier this year by announcing a plan to delist. What I found really interesting about this article, because um, Euronext has issued a statement saying, um, if... Uh, like uh, citing internal estimates, he said that 250 million in stamp duty receipts will be lost if Flutter follows CRH's decision to delist from the Dublin stock market. But the journalist, who's Donald Macken, uh, Donald McNamee, didn't give us the figure for how much would be lost to the exchequer if the one percent levy is abolished. Now he does acknowledge that it's going to cost a lot of money, 
But we're not told how much it's going to cost if we get rid of the 1% levy. We're told how much we would lose if Flutter decides to leave, right? So That's biased. Like, the, like there's, the, there's a biased reporting there because it's leading us to think one thing is worse than the other when we can't measure. We don't have a baseline. It's, it's a lobbying piece. That's what it is, to try and get rid of a, a tax levy on stock exchange major multinational massive corporations where one company alone is paying 250 million in stamp duty and they're trying to eradicate that to get rid of that 250 million and the business post this is why i say you know there's a public service remit and the business post who are very good on most issues and all the rest of it have to give us what the figure is going to be if we lose that one percent stock exchange levy like you cannot come in here and just tell us uh, a print an article that tells us what the loss will be if we lose one person to the to 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 the New York Stock Exchange. Tell us what if we scrapped it. You know those guys. Like here's the thing: you scrap the one percent. What have we lost? I or, or sorry, what do we gain? We scrap it, right? We lose that two hundred and fifty million anyway, because we're not getting it anymore. So scrap your one percent levy or reduce it or do whatever you want to do with it. But we're losing all of that money. Um, if we lose everybody. If everybody in the Irish Stock Exchange decides to list in New York, we're going to get the same amount of money from them as we'd get if they went if we scrapped the levy. So scrap the levy and everyone moved to New York. It doesn't make a difference. But we're it's, not presented with that. But it's it's taken this. It's 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 when people are actually waiting for an opportunity to push to lobby, you know, for a tax cut, and then an opportunity arises and they use it. It's very similar to a couple of months ago, um, when they were talking about you know reducing the tax that landlords pay. Uh, and they were saying that, you know, recent research has shown like landlords are, you know, talking about leaving the market because of this. And I, remember I was on the Tonight Show, so I had the figures of a, a report that had just been done. And it was basically it was like nine percent of those that were talking about leaving the sector or nine percent of landlords were talking about leaving the sector because of the tax. There was loads of other reasons that there was 25 percent talking about leaving the sector, but the other kind of. Um, fifteen percent, fifteen percent were about totally different reasons. So it was like, why would we cut the tax of that whole sector? Why would we lose all of that income yeah. to save a small percentage of people who are probably going to leave anyway? Yeah. But it, it was an excuse. It was a it, we we're going to jump on this. We're going to jump on this little news story to try and just lower the tax base. And that's mm-hmm. you know that's exactly what this, this sounds like. This is it's like they might leave anyway. They might want to go to the New York Stock Exchange. There might be other reasons why they want to trade over there and not here. Um, and we will have lost that that revenue from the whole base because yeah. of you know one company that we probably will lose anyway that's the end of part one of this week's podcast we're going to split them into two because there's so much to cover um including in part two will be the interviews with the occupants of the iceland store on talbot street so please do watch out for over the next day or two for part two of Uh, this week's episode of The Week at Work. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week.